This trip through Telehell is brought to you by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O, podgo.co. And you know that section where it says, how did you hear about Podgo? Well, be sure to mention Telehell Podcast in that section of the application. Trust me, it'll mean a lot to both you and to us in the long run. And since this is one of our shorter episodes, let's get the second sponsor out of the way. Telehell is proud to partner up with Dave's Archives, the Internet's premier place for a lot of nostalgia from the 80s, 90s, and even the present. And that includes some vintage commercials, like this. Want to watch more retro goodies? Head to YouTube and type in Dave's Archives, or you can follow him on Facebook, also at Dave's Archives. And now, let's take a look at some terrible television. Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. I don't want to do this episode. I really don't. But because I casually mentioned the subject in one of our episodes last year, it seems as though I have no choice. Well, the Brady parents want to spend some quality time together now that everything's moved in. But since this is TV and the designated family hour... Something has to come along to prevent this G-rated show from getting a P attached to it. So now, at the risk of having my soul turn into the toilet paper Harvey Weinstein uses in prison, we must now spend a few minutes going over something that's boring, educational, and actually kind of virtuous. Intellihell. Okay, since I don't want to piss off the boss, we might as well rip the band-aid off. It's time once again for... A Telehell History Lesson. And as long as there's been televised entertainment, there's always been specific forms of entertainment that may not be suitable for younger viewers. Nowhere is this more noticeable than the ever-increasing amount of sexual and violent imagery being presented on TV during parts of the day when said younger viewers may be alert enough to watch them. Now, I know we always throw around the joke from The Simpsons, and yes, that means you can play the clip. Oh, won't somebody please think of the children? But when it comes to protecting people's innocence from sexual and violent images on television, perhaps this time around, it may bear more thought than one can imagine. 
For years, there have been many viewpoints made by special interest groups arguing the cases for more controls by the TV networks to reduce the amount of sex and violence being presented on television, as well as equal views by the networks and other special interests that support TV sex and violence for whatever reasons they have. On the one hand, the Parents Television Council, a watchdog group for exposing the dangers of TV sex and violence among other obscenities, spent the better part of the turn of this current century in researching how much sex and violence an audience is exposed to while watching TV, reporting that TV violence has seen an increase in the hundreds of percent from 1998 to 2006 on some networks, with the bulk of that increase happening during the 8 p.m. hour, when most children are still awake to watch TV. They eventually conclude their study by stating that existing stopgap measures to curb TV sex and violence, such as the ill-conceived V-chip and the TV rating system imposed by the FCC, simply weren't enough. Caroline Schulenberg of the Parents Television Council says, quote, Advertisers have a role to play in curbing TV violence. Using their unique position of influence, they can encourage broadcasters to reduce the frequency and explicitness of TV violence. Broadcast affiliates, too, can play a role by preempting excessively violent programs and refusing to air violent programs in syndication during times of the day when children are watching TV. Many lawmakers have proposed legislation to curb TV violence, but all attempts to legislatively address this problem have failed on First Amendment grounds. Perhaps it's time for Congress to revisit the issue and consider including violence in the category of indecent content that can be regulated by the Federal Communications Commission. End quote. A valid suggestion. However, that's only half of the argument. The other half lies in what little opposition to the issue there seems to be. Hard as it is to find anything positive to counteract the strong viewpoints against TV violence, the points do exist. Believe it or not, there are some who argue that instead of television inciting such behavior among those who watch it, it can also be argued that these images can be used as a learning tool. Ben Orlando of the website OurPastTimes.com says, quote, Through watching violence on television programs and news broadcasts, children can learn about the world. They can gain an understanding of problems so that they can better prepare for finding solutions. But watching violence on television can also teach them about the consequences of violent acts. Jib Fowles, author of a book touting the benefits of TV violence, believes more television shows teach children that good will prevail over evil and that crime doesn't pay. If children know about prison, vengeance, fines, and all the other negative after-effects of violent acts, Fowles argues that they are less likely to commit violent acts in real life." End quote. There have also been arguments that the control of sex and violence on television violates a broadcaster's First Amendment rights. But even that assumption is considered open-ended by some. One particular report states that because of the FCC's failure to provide a clear definition of the First Amendment when it comes to televised programming, TV itself is becoming less safeguarded in terms of questionable material. This is due in part to a decline in censorship in recent years, prompting the substantial rises in sex and violence to begin with. This begs the question, what else can be done to prevent children from being exposed to the ever-increasing amount of this content on TV that has not been attempted already? Through the Telecommunications Act of 1996, prior efforts include the pre-installed and aforementioned V-chip on most current TV sets to electronically block out bad images. The V-chip unfortunately didn't quite win over the public due to overall lack of knowledge on how the device worked. In 1997, the same act instituted a rating system for TV programming. 
one that resembles that of the Motion Picture Association's current ratings judgment system. While the rating system still exists on TV today, it's done little to nothing to deter young viewers from watching these kinds of programs. With little being planned or experimented to help combat the problem, what else can be done to safeguard a youthful audience from viewing such imagery? Which brings us to the subject for today, and on that note, my apologies in advance for cribbing a lot of notes from Wikipedia. But quite honestly, there was a lot to sift through. In 1974, there was a widespread criticism regarding the amount of sex and violence on American television. Although there are several examples, there was one television scene that caused a particularly strong backlash. The 1974 NBC TV movie, Born Innocent, starring Linda Blair, featured a same-sex rape scene between two women. And let's just say, uh, device was used. Let's leave it at that. That particular scene was even briefly shown in daytime promotional spots for the film. The scene drew so much outcry from its first airing and was also blamed for the real-life rape of a young girl in California, which then led to a case before that state Supreme Court, that in January of 1975, then-FCC Chairman Richard E. Wiley addressed the Senate and House Communications and Commerce subcommittees, stating that all three networks should agree to adopt what was called a family viewing hour in response to the criticism. The National Association of Broadcasters took the gesture one step further, decreeing that local stations also air family-friendly programming in the 7 p.m. time slot a time that networks were forbidden from programming under what was called the primetime access rule, and were thus up to individual stations to program. And if you want to know what the primetime access rule is, short version, it's the reason why you've been watching shows like Jeopardy, Wheel of Fortune, and Entertainment Tonight at 7pm for decades on end. But I digress. The president of CBS at the time wanted to go through with the measure, but would only do so if rival networks NBC and ABC consented, citing a possible decline in ratings if they were the only network to try the new policy, which stood to reason because CBS had been the number one network for 18 years up to that point. By the end of 1974, each network executive agreed to endorse the family viewing hour and implement it by the fall 1975 TV season. And almost immediately, the impact of the rule was felt all over television. One of the more notable complaints on the issue was that of TV super producer Norman Lear, whose All in the Family was a ratings hit at 8 p.m. Saturday nights on CBS. Due to the family rule, Lear was forced to move his show to 9 p.m. on Monday nights, which back then was a lightly viewed time slot. A move that Lear and his cast protested thusly. Television's grown up now. No one needs a marriage vow. Folks go to the toilet now. These are the days. Single girls can take a pill. Robert can propose to Bill. We can show my pregnancy And John Boy can have VD <laughs> Plus a quick vasectomy <laughs> After nine o'clock
Lear's protests ultimately resulted in a lawsuit that he filed towards the government. And with the help of various showbiz guilds, including the Writers Guild of America, Lear won his case. And eventually, the family viewing hour was deemed unconstitutional in November of 1976, when United States District Court Judge Warren J. Ferguson declared the family viewing hour a good idea in theory, but that the FCC had overstepped its bounds in having it instituted. The FCC privately lobbied three major networks to adopt the policy instead of holding public hearings on the matter, and Ferguson ruled on those grounds that the family viewing hour had no binding merit. The decree made by the National Association of Broadcasters in 1975 was also overturned, giving station free reign on what to air in those pre-primetime slots again. But because of how slowly the wheels turn in politics, the rule wasn't formally lifted until the end of the TV season in 1977. The end of the rule, however, did not stop others from attempting to revive it in one form or another. One such case happened in 1989, when a concerned viewer tried to take this show off the air. And on that note, I'm going to let that concerned citizen, one Miss Terry Ricolta, explain her story via a 1990 edition of the long-lost magazine program, appropriately called, PM Magazine. It sports women, it has anti-family attitudes, the stereotypes poor people. It's just a very offensive program. I'm a mother and concerned about my children. They are primary in my life. And I don't think a steady diet of sex and violence is in their best interest. Last May, Ricolta formed a group called Americans for Responsible Television. And among other things, they wanted to set up a family viewing time from 7 to 9 each evening to be devoted to family viewing. Makes I sense, like doesn't it? it? You do? I like that I idea. I think it is a good idea. Now, she also wants us to know that she is not a prude. She watches L.A. Law. She even likes the raunchy jokes on Saturday Night Live. She's just happy about it because it's late at night. You know, and I think that's okay. I think all of us like to have variety in our television viewing, and all she's trying to do is set up a time where the kids can turn on the TV and not be offended. In light of there being an increase in questionable material over the years, as well as an increase in the number of televised outlets where material is being showcased, up to and including cable and streaming services, there have been some recent efforts in attempting to reinstate the rule over the past few years, but to little avail. So how exactly can such a controversial rule be reinstated properly without any major ramifications, legal or otherwise? One way for the family hour to be workable is if the hour itself was not considered mandatory by the government, but rather just a recommended guideline. The option to have the networks broadcast lighter programming should be just that, optional without the fear of getting in trouble with higher-ups in Congress or the FCC. Have the networks try to figure out the parts of their schedule where family programming might benefit the most and move edgier programming to a later time period where perhaps an underperforming show may be justifiably removed. It may result in a number of temporary holes in everybody's respective schedules, but at least with the networks doing so in their own way and on their own volition, perhaps they could come across the right combination of programming that will work best for the audiences they seek. Another possibility in enforcing the family hour is by expanding the hours of prime time significantly during the week and at the same time, dumping the prime time access rule. As it stands right now, most major networks, 
except of course for Fox and the CW, air their primetime programming from 8 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern every weeknight, with the addition of a 7 p.m. hour on Sundays. In the expansion process, all of the networks will have the same four-hour block of primetime available to their schedules, 7 p.m. to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Sunday. With the addition of that extra 7 p.m. hour on the remaining six days of the week, it can easily create numerous openings for programming that fits their particular time slot, preferably that of programming aimed at younger demographics or even public affairs programs. While all existing programming can be virtually left alone, at the same time, an unrelated but positive side effect would be the addition of more jobs in show business and behind the scenes due to the immediate increase in the number of new programs being put into production. A third scenario in making the family hour work is a little tricky, but can otherwise work if, and only if, full cooperation was made between networks and producers. A worst case scenario would be if the producers and network executives were able to be more hands-on when collaborating on the content they present, rather than facing constant scrutiny from network censors. If the network wants a program of a certain nature to air at a specific time, but the showrunners are opposed, Perhaps the option of an impartial third-party mediator should be invoked, just in case the showrunner feels that their freedom of speech is being violated in altering their show to fit the appropriate time slot. If no resolution can be made over a period of time, the network could opt to cancel the show, only on the condition that the showrunners, cast, crew, and anybody else who works on it are compensated just enough so that no further legal action is required. It may be a costly measure for the networks in the long run, but there's always the possibility of an even bigger sweeping change on the horizon as a result of such an experiment taking place. Of course, when it comes to safeguarding what children watch on a regular basis, especially when being viewed together as a family, it's wishful thinking that any of the above hypotheses can be taken seriously, even with some fine-tuning. So, where does the family viewing hour get nestled into the sofa of telehell? Think of the children may be the most annoying words when it comes to protesting, but I can think of nine other words that'll get more attention. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. While the intent of the rule was to help curb the amount of lust and violence that was seen on TV at the time. The whole thing turned out to upend traditional norms on television. Everything from canceling TV shows that didn't comply with the rule, to moving shows out of time slots that made them successful in the first place, resulting in some government-mandated treachery. These moves resulted in TV producers scrambling because their established hits were suddenly put into limbo. But also anger from the viewers who had a hard time finding the shows in anger that ultimately hurt TV's bottom line. Because if nobody can find the shows, nobody will watch them. If nobody watches them, the network won't make any money on those show successes. And no matter how good their intentions are, greed is still greed. Quite honestly, the entire rule kind of reminds me of when Ned Beatty told Peter Finch in the movie Network that he was meddling with the primal forces of nature. Little did they realize just how much meddling all the networks wound up doing in the long run. The Family Viewing Hour earns six out of nine circles of telehell. There is no one individual solution that is considered to be the end-all be-all that fixes everything. Though given the right scenario and temperament, a given solution can be a step in the right direction. 
Ultimately, it's up to the viewer to decide what it is that their family can or cannot watch, whether together or individually. On the other hand, there's always turning the TV off and doing something productive with the family. Going outside, riding a bike, taking a hike. <laughs> oh man, I couldn't say that with a straight face. Look, we know people are going to watch this stuff anyway. If something offends you so much, just change the channel to something else. Or record the show on your DVR and watch it later. Oh, think of the children. I don't want them to watch the... Look, you have the option to control things. And it's okay. Chances are they're probably watching their own shows on their streaming devices anyway, so... Really, who's to say who's protecting whom? And look, we get it. Everybody wants to think of the children because, in another bit of cliche, the children are our future. We don't want to put them on the wrong path, and we definitely want to teach them the difference between right and wrong. And that's okay. But you know they grow up. And you know that when they grow up, they're going to watch anyway. The question is, though, what happens when they grow up? That's a lesson for the next generation. Anyway, rant over. And so concludes this telehell history lesson. I know this was a dull episode, I know this was a boring episode, but can we at least now talk about something that I'm interested in talking about? I mean, something big has to happen in the next week or so, right? Next time on Telehell, if you thought Snow White was the worst thing to happen at the Oscars, I've got some bad news for you. I have studied extensively. I studied with Stella. I studied with Strasberg. I study Stanislavski. I am a serious actor. I was on Dynasty! Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. We know what you're thinking. Is it safe to go outside yet? Well, almost, but until you do go outside and breathe some air for once, you can still socialize with us. Look for Telehell at our social media feeds, Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. You've got mail. What the hell? Oh yeah, we get letters sometimes. It's kind of rare when it does happen, but since this particular show fell a little short, why don't we answer this letter here? This one comes to us from a Mr. Michael McMahon, and Mr. McMahon says, quote, I just wanted to say I discovered you a few weeks ago thanks to a referral from Dave's Archives, actually, and I've binged everything since then. You're a good respite from the political podcasts I normally listen to. Thank you very much for saying that, and especially thank you for still listening to us, even after that, uh, one we did about number 45 back in January. Kind of surprised nobody's commented about that one yet, but as often as I do, I digress. Anyway, he continues, 
You probably already have a long list of topics to address, and I may be covering ground that has been either suggested before or that you've considered and rejected for various reasons, but I thought I'd pass along some shows that have come to mind as I've been listening. Well, we do, uh, we do take requests up to a point, but, uh, we'll we'll see uh, what we have here. Uh, He says, uh, one that I remember watching with great disappointment when it first aired, and another for your awesome theme song collection, The Ropers. I've seen episodes online at times, but I'm not sure of their availability now. And he sent a link to the Ropers theme song. Well, as you can tell by uh, our playing it, we actually do have the Ropers theme song, but I am going to quickly say why we're more than likely not going to do the Ropers, even though it's very much uh, in the echelons of bad TV shows. In fact, it's on the infamous TV Guide Top 50 Worst Shows of All Time list, but I think that may be a little unfair. And the reason why it's unfair is because of the same reason why I would never cover a show like Three's a Crowd, which happens to be the show that came after Three's Company. And I'll tell you why about all those things. Um, If you heard our uh, bonus episode about uh, Joni Loves Chachi, I briefly mentioned, I don't know how the subject got brought up, but I, I mentioned defending Three's a Crowd if you, if, you, if you ever saw the original British version of all of these shows, uh, first there was Man About the House, which became Three's Company in America, but it was on for a long time in the UK. And from Man About the House, uh, they had their own version of the Ropers named George and Mildred, which turned out to be a spin-off. George and Mildred, that ran for a couple years. And then when Man About the House ended, they did a spinoff involving said man and his new, uh, I guess, uh, live-in love, because, you know, it's very much like Three is a Crowd. They didn't want to get married for some reason, but that show was called Robin's Nest. Now, the reason why I wouldn't cover the Ropers is because it is canonical with all the other shows that happened in the UK. So even though the show is bad by some accounts and measures, I mean, the the few shows that I've seen on Pluto TV's uh, dedicated Three's Company channel and also on uh, the digital channel Antenna TV, I mean, it it was a product of its time and I think it kind of went a little, uh, you know, overboard with sex jokes sometimes, but I just find it to be just a run-of-the-mill meh sitcom. Nothing that would fit our standards, nothing that would fit the Nine Circles, at least I think, anyway. Just plain old mediocrity kind of thing, and at the same time, it's also a continuing part of, I guess you could say, the extended universe of Three's Company, not unlike Three's a Crowd, which everybody seemed to hate for some reason, because it was just John Ritter and nobody else from the original show. I think uh, Larry made have made an appearance on one episode or something, but what those people don't realize is that it's a continuation of a story just like Robin's Nest was a continuation of Man About the House. So I really don't get where the hate's coming from. By itself, I think the, I think Three's a Crowd's actually a pretty funny show and The Ropers is just meh. 
And we don't exactly go for meh around here, so uh, thank you very much for at least suggesting it. And yes, we do uh, we do have the uh, Ropers theme song as we just played. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, both theme songs were done by the same guy, the guy that actually did all the early songs on Sesame Street, Mr. Joe Raposo. May he rest in peace. And the thing I like about the Ropers theme song is that they actually try to sneak in a little bit of Three's Company in there, uh, particularly in this part. So, I, I thought that was a little bit of a clever twist, but, uh, yeah, uh, the Ropers uh, more than likely won't happen. Uh, but thank you for suggesting it anyway. The letter continues, uh, I'm also interested in hearing your take on The Late Show with Joan Rivers. You covered Chevy Chase, but this was kind of the champagne bottle that Chris and the Fox Network back when it was still FBC, which we mentioned in that episode. Uh, lots of attention, lots of money. I, the guy writing, enjoyed it, but as I recall, behind-the-scenes drama and low ratings combined to tank it, but I could be wrong. Uh, while that is indeed a can of worms to open up at another day in time, I don't quite know where it'll fit in, because believe it or not, we actually have our schedule or at least 90% of our schedule uh, in place for season four next fall, Maybe, depending on how things go, like if I can't find footage for one thing, I may have to stick in The Late Show with Joan Rivers as a bit of a placeholder because yes, there is a lot to tell about this. Not just the whole uh, Joan Rivers uh, double-cross Johnny Carson or however people put it. I know she didn't mean to double-cross, but that's how the legend goes. Uh, there's that, there's the fact that she only did the show for a couple of months before they got in guest hosts. Actually, truth be told, there is one show that I want to cover sometime in the future just because of how notorious it is, and we really strive more for notoriety around here when we can. But there is no footage of this available, it seems. Like, maybe a five-minute clip on YouTube, but that's about it. But not the late show with Joan Rivers, but the show that wound up replacing it. And that would be a little dud from 1987 called The Wilton North Report. And the only claim to fame that I can think of, aside from it being the follow-up to The Late Show, the original Late Show, that is, is that Conan O'Brien was once an audience warm-up guy for that show. And there is footage of that available, but I don't think it would actually contribute to the story. I would actually have to see, well, partly the first episode, because whenever we do these shows, we uh, you know go by the pilot and then uh, all that other stuff. Uh, but with what little footage there is available, we can't really do that. But The Late Show with Joan Rivers is not 100% out of the question. It just seems like it's a little densely layered to uh, tell at this time. So maybe somewhere around either late season four or maybe even season five, we may get to cover it. Because quite honestly, I I've seen the first few episodes that there were on there. And for all intents and purposes, Joan did the damn best that she could with that. But like you alluded to there, Mr. McMahon, you, uh, you, you did say that there was a lot of uh, behind the scenes infighting and... That needs to be told, but I need to double check on a couple research things. Um, 
most notably uh, Barry Diller's memoirs, because he tells a lot about his side of the story as much as Joan Rivers tells her side of the story in her various memoirs, but that's another thing for another day. Uh, but it is definitely on the radar, so uh, we're going to keep that in the back of our heads. And then, finally, you mentioned this, uh, this thing. Tattooed Teenage Alien Fighters from Beverly Hills. I'm gonna say that again. Tattooed Teenage Alien Fighters from Beverly Hills. Now, I'm Googling this right now. I'm, I'm going straight to Wikipedia for this. I'm, I'm following along here. Uh, what is this? Uh, children's television series produced by Deke and aired on USA. That's probably why I've never heard of it before because Believe it or not, I actually didn't wind up getting cable until we were forced to switch to digital in 2009, so I missed out on quite a lot of things, and this is one of them. Uh, ran from 1994 to 95, uh, reruns aired on uh, some Canadian channel from 2011 to 2012, and the series is about four teens picked to fight an... Wait, hold on, I want to make sure I get this right. The series is about four teens who are picked by an alien to fight off monsters while finding the time to overcome problems at school. Gee, I wonder why this sounds familiar. Well, this was 1994. I mean, Power Ranger mania was practically everywhere, so uh, I, I can definitely mark this down for for uh, fraud and heresy and all sorts of other rip-off jargon, but... Uh, uh, I really don't know what it is I'm getting myself into without actually uh, seeing it. Okay, can we play the theme song, please? Molecule, home planet for the diabolically evil Emperor Gorganus. Gorganus has vowed to use his army of alien monsters to conquer Earth. The focal point of a system of power portals he needs to rule the universe. I am Nimbar, head protector of the power portals. To carry out my mission to stop Gorganus, I have chosen four teenagers from Beverly Hills. I summon them by flashing their tattoos. Then they transform into galactic sentinels. The fate of the Earth depends on these tattooed teenage alien fighters from Beverly Hills. We may have to, we may have to put this in as a placeholder for somewhere uh, in the next season, because this looks a little too stupid. <laughs> this, this just looks like, like, okay, the, the whole Power Ranger craze of the 90s did spawn a lot of ripoffs and also, you know, I guess you could say side quests, if you will, to certain people. Like, there's, there's ripoffs and then there's faithful homages, I guess you could say. Like, among the homages, I guess you could say VR Troopers, since they're part of the same company, Saban, uh, Masked Rider, to a very lesser extent, Big Bad Beetleborgs, 
And then you got the ripoffs. And the biggest one I thought at the time when it aired, before I even heard about this, was a show called Superhuman Samurai Cyber Squad. Cyber, by the way, spelt with an S. Um, it had Tim Curry in it as the bad guy, which I think kind of elevated it a little bit, but it followed the same pattern, basically. You know, teens get in trouble and they morph into whatever it is they morph into. Uh, but that one particular show, the, the Tattooed Teens of Beverly Hills, just saying that out loud, it just seems so silly. Um, yeah, we may get to play around with that next season, because, uh, well, I don't want to spoil anything right now, but uh, let's just say I am going to be allowing for more requests in a certain way. But I can't say what that way is until we get to July, so that's a bit of a teaser for you. So, uh, other than that, uh, let me just see uh, the conclusion there. It says, I'm sure there are others, but you're doing an amazing job. Thanks for the show. No, thank you, Michael McMahon, for writing the fan letter, because, quite honestly, we did not really want to do a 20-minute episode this week, so this, if nothing else, helped kill some time. So thank you very much for that. And if any of you out there want to ask us any questions, because we do our annual Ask Telehealth show in the summer, and we would maybe like to start assembling some questions right now for it, there is a place you can reach us. The same place that Mr. McMahon just reached us, and that would be telehealthpodcast at gmail.com. <clears throat> One more time, because I was choking on my own spit there, telehealthpodcast at gmail.com. We will read every letter that we get, and if it winds up becoming a deluge at any time, we're going to get to as many letters as we possibly can. So if you're listening to the show, I would love to hear from you, aside from our uh, social feeds at Twitter and Facebook at Podcast. And other than that, uh, thank you very much for listening, and catch you on the next one.